that no matter how complex, how convoluted, that your story begins, that you do not have to accept somebody else's narrative of who you are. They do not define you, that ultimately you get to define yourself. On this episode of the Creator Community, we'll meet Naima Olachunji, a mother, entrepreneur, avid cyclist, and chiropractor. We'll learn of her upbringing that for years left her confused about her identity and questioning her own worthiness. We'll hear about her triumph of overcoming the need for food stamps to earning her doctorate degree and starting her own successful business. We'll then follow Naima's journey of coming to terms with the pain of her mysterious upbringing that lingered for decades to find her way to process her struggle and becoming an unexpected author of Raised as a Lie. Check out the show. Welcome to the third season of the Creator Community. This is a podcast series from book publisher New Degree Press, or NDP. I'm your host, John Saunders, founder of Ford Advisory Solutions. This show is designed to celebrate, elevate, and showcase many of the incredible authors that have published their books with NDP. This year, 2021, NDP will cross over 1,000 published authors. In this show, we get to know the authors and their books, as well as give you a behind-the-scenes look at their journey. We'll find out what it takes to bring a book from an idea to being available wherever you buy books online. It's no easy task, nothing worth it ever is. But with the solid structure, coaching, and community, it's very much attainable. Today, I have with me Dr. Naima Olatunji, chiropractor, entrepreneur, avid cyclist, foodie, and now author of her new book, Raised as a Lie. It's a memoir which explores the story of growing up amidst deceit, denial, and racism. The book bravely takes the reader from family secrets to freedom. Naima's book has a December 2021 target publishing date and will be available wherever you buy books online. Naima, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It is such an honor to be here. I'm so excited for this interview. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure. It's so great to have you here. Before we dive into the book, and we'll certainly spend some time there, love to learn more about the story of Naima. You know, how did you find your way to entrepreneurship and and founding a chiropractor business? Have you ever looked in the mirror and thought I I was going to be more successful and further along right now? All the time. Yes. (laughs) I had that moment when I was 36. And I was a mom of three, a wife. And what I realized is that I had been hiding behind my kids and I had been hiding from the things that I really wanted in my life. Only I, I think that I just, what I believed was that being a mom and a wife would, should have been enough. And it somewhere deep in my soul, I knew that I was living small. And when I finally got outside of myself enough to say, I want more, I want more, and it's okay to want more, I decided um, that I was going to go back to grad school, 
with three kids, two dogs, a husband and a house, I thought it'd be a really good idea to go back to doctoral grad school. Like not even like the regular, like, Hey, I'm getting a master's and it's going to be like 18 months. No, this is a four year hyper intensive 12 hours a day minimum. And my family, thank goodness was huge supporters and agreed to, yes, we'll go on this journey with you now. Why chiropractic? That's an entirely different story. And that simply was around my 13-year-old at the time had a health crisis and nothing else worked. And when a chiropractor finally introduced herself into our lives, it changed everything. And because that health crisis had been so all encompassing in our lives and really, really just pervasively um, detrimental to my 13 year old's just way of life. At the time, we really struggled. And when chiropractic fixed the, the migraines that he was suffering from, I decided to raise my hand and say, you know, the thing that I want to do with my career is dedicated to giving hope back to families that were just like mine. Turns out it's been a great decision. 13 years later, I am even more happy than I thought possible. And I'm just super grateful. So your son is okay now? He is. Oh, good. So amazing. While he has not got any more migraines, he certainly caused a few in his time. But at 26, he's phenomenal. And I'm really grateful because the trajectory of where his life was going, pain meds, opioids, those sorts of things are just not part of his reality. And what a blessing. What what a blessing. I'm sure it was an incredibly challenging time for you and your family. And how extraordinary that you took that challenge as a way to go out, change your own life, find the life more so you wanted to live. And do it in under helping others. That's extraordinary. Was it your son's health issue, you think, that drove this sort of spark? Or what was the moment at 36 that you really said, I need to, I need to jump out and do this? It really was the moment in the mirror. I thought that by 36 that I would be this uber successful attorney is what I thought. And that was because I had originally started undergrad with a political science major, I was going on to New York and I was going to go to NYU law school. And I was going to have this amazing high powered career as an attorney living in New York, fighting the good fight. And what happened instead is I, I found out who my father was and it completely changed the entire trajectory of where I was going, what I thought that I was, that I was going to be. And it was based all off of heritage. And so now 30 years later, I wrote a memoir about it. (laughs) Unbelievable. And certainly that's a, a lead in your story. I'd love to touch on one more subject before we go there, which is, you know, when you think about this, you've been on this creative journey, you've written this book, it's taken a year of actual work, but certainly many, many years of thinking about it and framing it out and, and this kind of thing. You know, have you found, you know, what has the, the creative journey been like for you Is entering this new space, running a business as an entrepreneur? You know, what was, a, what was the creative journey like for you? When I finally got out of my own way and said yes to writing this book and telling my story, what I was most terrified of <laughs> is 
how do you do that? You're not even a writer. Like I'm not even a journaler. And I didn't understand how that I was going to make that a reality. And it wasn't until my really good friend Morgan wrote her book and she went through the Creator Institute and NDP that I called her up one day and I was like, all right, tell me about your process. And when she shared it with me, I reached out to Eric and we had this conversation. And in the beginning, because the structure was so organized, it allowed somebody like me who I felt like I didn't, here's the truth. I felt like I wasn't even handling all the things that were in my life. Like I'm the circus lady spinning all of the plates. (laughs) Only I know when I'm on one end of the plate spinning platform that the plate on the other hand, it's already crashing. I'm already knowing this. This is the type of life that I am. And I'm not super organized. Don't tell anybody. I'm not super organized. I'll keep that secret. so, So because of that, I didn't think that somebody like me could actually become an author and actually write a whole entire book. And so it was the small sort of bite sized pieces and writing assignments that the program created where the structure was both rigid and flexible enough. And so that was how that I was able to create, you know, this, this book. But before that, it was just all sort of in the air, like something you you think about, fantasize about, but to really give it legs, I needed a structure and I needed a program and I needed a lot of handholding. And I am beyond great. You want to talk about gratitude, beyond grateful for that. I am here today because the Creator Institute and because of NDP. There's no, there's no other way to, to accept that that's the gratitude that is in my heart. What an incredible journey. Morgan Wider, of course, is I think who you're referencing there and Eric Custer, the founder of this whole organization, Creator Institute and New Degree Press. You know, I, I think there was a moment too, when you, when you think about this, where, where you, you know, how did you fit this thing into your life, right? Where, you know, it's not, this isn't a sort of a 30 minute add on to your day writing a book. How, how did you fit this into your life, Nima? So in the beginning, because there were small bite-sized writing assignments, that was how, you know, like, oh, just write a story about this. Oh, it's just 200 words. Oh, now you just need 500 words. Okay. It was those assignments, right, that made me think, all right, I can do this. When, (laughs) because if we roll back just for a moment, Eric And I's very first conversation was like, hey, you're going to create this book and it's going to be 25,000 words. And I thought he was kidding. So I laughed. And then I realized that he was actually being serious. And I was like, well, that's not possible. Like, that's not what we're doing. Because I I have all of these other things going on. And by the way, I don't even journal. So I don't even know how, how's that even going to happen? And to look at the end product, I am just, I'm astounded. And it really was because the first assignment was to write one story. The second assignment was to write two stories. And then we're going to take those stories and we're going to sort of create something bigger. It's called a chapter, right? It, it, I think for somebody like me, when I, anticipate what something is going to look like. If I know what the end looks like, then I, I'm, I'm shying away from it because that seems too big. 
But if you give it to me in bite-sized pieces, then I know, oh, I can take some time before I go into the practice and I can write for an hour. Oh, I can take a couple of hours on the weekend and I can do some writing. Oh, now that I have this entire day off when the assignments got bigger, well, I'll just take five hours with a lot of breaks in between. And the closer you get to deadlines, the more motivated you are. There were some times, don't get me wrong, there were some moments where I had to tell my team at work, like, listen, disturb me for no other reason than my kids are dying. Like, do not open this door. And But outside of that, outside of those few moments, I, I felt like it was doable. And that is the part that counts for somebody like me. So there's a structure out there that gave you these guideposts, if you will, and you found a way to stay between them and fit it into your life being, dare I say, hyper-efficient, which is fantastic. Uh, Thank you for sharing that and and going through the journey. And and, I mean, I love this idea of gratitude. I feel the same way, having written my book through the same program. It's been just an amazing experience. You You talked a little bit about your dad there a few minutes ago and discovering who your dad was. Naima, I... I've known who my dad is my whole life. Is your story different than that? Yeah, just just a tiny, tiny bit different. I I didn't think that my story was very unique in that it was just my life. And it was not actually until I was in my early 30s. I was part of a support group for moms and all of the women were of color, right? And we're all sitting around and we're chatting at one of our monthly dinners. And the woman next to me, Sophia, is talking about her hair journey because Black women always can connect on hair and curls and what it means and, and, you know, how do we take care of it natural versus, you know, chemically sort of styled and all the things. And she said, you remember those burns that used to get on the back of your ear when your mom would be straightening your um, hair from that hot iron comb? You'd be hanging out in the kitchen with her. And I listened and I was like, oh, that was before I was black. And she was like, what? And I just decided that moment that I would share the story. I have never talked about it publicly before. And there was over probably 50 women in that room. And as I continued to tell the story, all the conversations around me started quieting down and they began listening to this story of this young brown girl who grows up in this white family and all white schools. And, you know, mom tells her that her dad is her brother's dad and he's blonde haired and blue eyed and she's not exactly sure where the curls of the brown skin came from but don't worry it's somewhere explained in some deep dark recesses of your ancestry and it wasn't until i was 18 that 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 lie was revealed and so i had this sort of pre-black post-black like like there's two very significant delineations in my life where you can draw a line and you can you can see and then there's drastic differences post-black so it's it's been a journey it has definitely been a journey and it wasn't until last year 49 that I actually decided that I needed to tell this story Wow. So you grew up in a completely white family and one day learned this this wasn't entirely (laughs) your family. Mom was mom, mom, but uh, the rest of the story was a bit different. That is really fascinating. What was that? What was that moment like for you when you've got this message? 
it was tough. It was, it was, it was really tough. I, I grew up always being the outsider. I grew up always wanting to fit in. When I was four, I, we lived in this really small rural farming town and my mom was gardening and I was in the garden with her and I was watching her and she was picking the sides of her thumbs. And I was wondering, cause we're both kneeling down and, you know, I'm supposed to be pulling bugs off of tomato plants, but I'm trying to figure out how to eat the strawberries. And I just noticed my mom's fingers and she wasn't, she had paused and she was sort of gazing off and, and she wasn't watching me watch her. And I couldn't understand until she sort of winced and she looked down. There was a little pool of blood next to her thumb because she picked the skin off of it. And I wouldn't have told you that my mother was a nervous person or that she had a nervous habit, but that definitely was hers. And unbeknownst to me, a few months later, I had started the same habit, just really unconsciously. And there was this moment where I had was in the bathtub and she uh, let me stay in way too long and I was playing and she's drawing off, drawing me off and I'm standing up and my hands are in front of me and I'm looking at my hands and she says, you look like a shriveled up prune. And I turned my hands over and on the sides of my thumbs, I could see that I had been picking my skin, only my skin was white. And there was this whole moment that I remember at four that if I could pick off all of my skin, that I would look like my family and that my sister wouldn't, her hurtful words of you don't belong here and you're dirty and you're ugly and nobody wants you here, they would no longer be meaningful because I would look like everybody else. So when you fast forward to when I'm 18 and my mom is saying, by the way, Jim's not your father. And you think all of those years, all those years of feeling like I didn't fit in, that nobody wanted me, that no nobody would claim me that I was somehow less than sort of all came to a halt in that moment. And then I had to spend a long time trying to unravel those things, but I kept those very secret. Like I didn't share how hard of a time that I was having with anybody. And I had learned that as a child to keep your feelings quiet and you keep them inside and you don't share them with people. And you certainly don't share your vulnerabilities because it won't serve you. And so it took me several decades to come to terms with what that meant for me. And I'm glad that I finally did and explore all of that through the book. It certainly was a cathartic process. Wow. So as a young child, you saw a nervous habit your mom had and saw it as a way to remove your you know, identity issue, if you will, your color so you could be like your family and sitting there as a young child wondering, why am I so different than all my family and never knowing because you were raised as a lie, were you not? Yeah. I mean, holy cow. So what, you know, what was the inspiration? You know, why, why did you feel the moment to get this story out there? Why did you have to get this story out there, Naima? 
You know, I think that for a very long time, what I didn't realize is the decisions that we make as a child that, that they carry over. So psychologists call them traumatic childhood events. And what we do as children is that we make decisions about what things mean on a very subconscious level. But then those decisions affect our choices. And then we're adults and we're making all of these choices about things that on a very subconscious level that we're not even aware of. And I was post-divorce six years and I thought that I was going to be alone. I truly did. And I was afraid of that. And then I met a man. And I thought it was my forever man because my marriage clearly had turned out not to be. And I was devastated when he decided he was going to leave. And I built my chiropractic practice. And there I was in the practice, standing there with him on a Sunday. We were supposed to be heading to brunch. And he's informing me he's leaving. And I dropped to my knees and begged this man, hands clutching his pants, trying to prevent him from walking out the door to please just love me and don't leave. And it was the moment that you sort of leave your body and you're up somewhere in the ceiling looking down. And I could see myself begging some man. And all I think is, why do you never feel like you are worthy? Why are you always in pursuit of things to convince yourself and others that you're enough? And I needed to figure that part out because, again, for 30 years, I have been going about my business stuffing down all of the hurts and the pain of not feeling like I was enough and not feeling like I, I belonged. And here I was, and it's undeniable. You cannot, I believe in my heart, at nearly 50, look at your actions and say, yeah, these are good. I'm good. I'm normal. It's not. And it wasn't okay with me. And in that moment, I decided you either figure this out or you spend the rest of your life in this same exact position, begging somebody to give you your self-worth. And I just decided enough was enough. Today's the day. Today's the day to move on. I mean, so many challenges you've faced in, in your life as, as a child, all this misunderstanding, all these lies you lived under, not knowing what your identity was and culminated in you on, on your hands and knees, begging a man to stay with you. I mean, and then what, what you know, in that moment, how, how did you find the power and the strength to have that realization? I think many would have curled up in a ball and, you know, just gone away. So if truth was be told, I was on a ball. I, I was, I was laying on the floor. I had enough sense to call my um, two dearest friends who literally drove to my practice with all the things. So to know me, you know, that I'm woo-woo crystals and sage and, you know, veganism and all the good stuff. And they came armed with all of the tools necessary and literally lifted me up off of the floor and sat with me and burned sage and said prayers and affirmations and then continued to do that for the next three weeks when I thought, that I was completely falling apart. 
And so what I have learned, because this is, mind you, people, (laughs) it's November. This was January of this year. So what I have learned along the way is that we are stronger than we think and that our tribe is everything. You surround yourself with people who see your potential and they see who you truly are. And then one day when you look in the mirror, then you can start seeing those reflections back again. And then you can pick yourself up and therapy every single Friday without fail. Therapy. There's there's every single time after we started the process um, of writing every single week. I would write something because some of those things you got to unearth some really just uh, feelings and emotions. And you, I didn't know how to process them. So I would take what I wrote and I would go to my therapist and we would spend an hour, sometimes two hours with him working it through in my brain and helping me understand and navigate, you know, as a scientist, as a doctor, like I know nervous system and I know the sympathetic nervous system and I know parasympathetic and I understand that, but the limbic system, the emotional brain, the amygdala, all the things that fight or flight, like I don't spend a tremendous amount of time studying that. I feel like I'm low key, a little bit of an expert now, but that was it. That was how you get through the hardest parts when you're writing something emotional is that you surround yourself with people who can truly support you and that they see the very best of your potential in you. Friends, community, some professional help. I mean, what a powerful story of overcoming an enormous personal struggle in your life. And that's how you got through it. I mean, what uh, what lovely friends to hear that story and that they spent that time and energy with you to help you overcome it. You know, when you think about raised as a lie in this journey of your life going through this, you know, not knowing who your dad was till you were, you know, an adult, you know, what do you think was the hardest part about writing this this book for you, Naima? It really was re-remembering some things that I had chosen to forget. So one of the experiences that I had in therapy was I I was telling him, I, I was like, well, we haven't talked about this before, but this thing has been on my heart and I don't know whether or not to include it in the book. And he paused after I told him what it was. And he said, Naima, we have talked about this. And I said, no, we haven't. We haven't talked about it. I, I'm telling you now. And he said, honey, we have talked about it. He said, you have spent so much time sweeping things under the rug and so much time ignoring and overriding because you've gone through one crisis after another in these last probably 15 years. Now your brain is doing this thing on autopilot. You are actively forgetting things that you are not intending to forget. That's mechanism. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And how much of my life had I actively forgot? And so I would say the hardest part 
was re-remembering those things and digging them up, not for digging up sake, but for truly to get to the root cause and then heal that. Because here's what I know, healing is possible. Your body and your brain do healing on an, on their own. If you cut your finger, it isn't the Band-Aid, it isn't the Neosporin, or in my case, the essential oil. That's not what heals your cut. It is your body's innate intelligence to be a self-healing organism. Your brain, your mind, your memories, your heart are all designed the same way, but you have to give them the opportunity. And sometimes you got to unearth those, work through them, it's like a big ball of yarn, right? And you've got to sort of, or Christmas lights, because we're coming into the season. You put those Christmas lights away in a bag, and then you got to pull them out the next year and figure out how to untangle them. That's what I think. I think that it was it was that. But I did it in the safety of a professional's office. And I think that when you have that security and you know in your heart that the person is there for you to help guide you through some pretty tumultuous times, then you, at least for me, felt far more comfortable in being able to peel back the layers, right? Shrek says the ogres are like onions. (laughs) They're like layers. We as human beings and our emotions are exactly the same. Epic work there, tying Shrek into that story. I like that a lot. Uh, the mom and me. I mean, <laughs> wow. So I almost feel like there's two sort of, uh, you talked earlier about sort of before I was black and after I found out I was black, I feel like now that was sort of certainly a journey of learning, right? And now I feel like this book has been an entirely new level of learning for journey, a learning journey for yourself, which is incredible. Just going through the act of it as you're going through this therapy and learning about yourself, putting it on paper must've been incredibly cathartic and in, in getting it out there. You know, you talk about a lot of really big themes in your book, no doubt about it. And one of, one of the big ones is worthiness. And you talked a little bit about it with, when you talked about the breakup story earlier, you know, what does worthiness mean to you? And, and how do you think you discovered yours? It is such a great question. And I have thought a lot about this and I thought for, gosh, for a while, I, I didn't think that I had the answer to it. And actually I realized that I had the answer in one of you and I's conversations. And what came out of my mouth when you asked me a question was an answer I didn't know that I actually had sort of worked out in my head. And it's this, the self-worth that we all walk around with, depending on where on the scale and the spectrum that you are, what I have learned and I believe this to be 100% true, is that worthiness is defined by the word that you keep to yourself. So when I said that I would write this book, this mammoth of a project that if I'm truthful, I didn't actually think that I could do. And then slowly but surely, I actually wrote a book, chapter by story by story, and then chapter by chapter, I wrote a book. And at the end of the book writing process of the first manuscript, I made a video. And it was just like, hey, look, everybody, I wrote a book. And in that, what I heard myself say is, I said I would do a thing, 
And then I did a thing. And that feeling that you do the thing that you said that you were going to do is everything. Because how many times do you tell your mother, brother, sister, neighbor, cousin, child, wife, I'll do this. You, oh, you need me to pick the kids up. Oh, you need me to make lunch. Oh, we need, you need to make me to make the doctor's appointment. Oh, I got to run this marathon with you because you're too scared to do it. Right? Sure. And then you keep your word to all those people. But for yourself, how many times do you break your word to yourself? And looking at my life in the mirror, I promise you, I've broken my word to myself more times than I would ever be willing to admit. And when I said I would do a thing and then I did a thing, it was everything to me. And so what I think that worthiness truly is, is keeping your word to yourself. And maybe you start out small and they're just small things like keeping a glass of water by your bedside. Because when you wake up in the morning, you start your day off hydrating because you said you wanted to drink more water. And then you do it and you do it one day and then you do it the next day and then you do it the next day. And then before you look up, you got a 57,000 page book or 57,000 word book. 57,000 pages, would that would be a record, I think. Wow. I mean, I, keeping a promise to yourself. I mean, it sounds simple. And, you know, one, one of uh, a quote that stayed with me for many, many years, Richard Bach, is the worst lies we tell are to ourselves. And it makes me think a little bit about that. And you kept this promise to yourself. You took on this monumental task. You worked through the structure of the community, the process, and made it happen. What a what a great way to do that. And, and I, I really appreciate the actionable lesson that maybe someone who's struggling out there with their own worthiness or identity can, can start with, which is the glass of water by the side of the bed. Like, let's stay hydrated every day. I mean, what a great actionable step. Speaking of identity, you know, you also talk about identity in the book, worthiness and identity, two big themes. Now, how do you think your identity has been shaped by by this story and in your journey? Mm. <laughs> so shortly after, we'll call it 18 months, I think it was about 18 months after I find out who my biological father is, and I know that I am now half Black, I go to USC, University of Southern California, and... <laughs> I decide it would be a really great idea to make up, <laughs> to compensate for 18 years. And so I become what I'd like to call is super black. So I joined the Black Student Association, and then I joined the Black Student Assembly, which is the umbrella organization to all of the Black organizations. I joined the New Black Panther Party. I wear shirts that say, you know, Black power, down with Whitey, up Hippocrates is a thief. Like I spent hours and hours reading and studying African history and truly understanding that there were these incredible dynasties that we had no idea about, that the lies that we were told in our history books were European-based stories that that oftentimes the true knowledge came from the African universities and schools of enlightenment for which that I did not know until I started this journey. And I was 
so overwhelmed by how amazing Black culture is and African history is, and that it's this living dynamic being, and that I just wanted to be part of it. And so I did all the things, put my hair in braids and big ring in my nose and went home with all of these huge ideas. Malcolm X's autobiography tucked underneath my arm and was ready to fight the good fight and bring the struggle on. And my family was like, the hell is happening, right? But this was also... 1992, the L.A. uprising over Rodney King's beating and then, you know, the acquittal of his beaters, right, his abusers and, you know, what police brutality meant to Black communities and and communities of color. And there was all of this sort of you know, social uprising, and it it fell right in line with this internal uprising that was happening within. And the thing that I can say is that I struggled for a lot of years because while I became super black, and I didn't identify with being biracial because the world, as I was nineteen and twenty and twenty, what I was learning is the world didn't see me as a white woman. So there was certainly no retreat. So I couldn't go back there. But the world also didn't see me like, oh, you're biracial. And that's like, that's, that wasn't, that was not the reception. It was, oh, you're a black woman. There, there was a moment that I was filling out some forms and the social security office and the woman just automatically checks black. She doesn't ask me. She just, and I remember that was a pretty pivotal moment. Like, oh, okay, this is how the world sees me. And I just didn't shy away from it. I fully embraced it. And, but then having two sides of of my life, it took me a long time to merge those. Those two, they didn't just come together effortlessly. I mean, my family was Italian and had a lot of racist ideas and and some of it was very subconscious and societal but they were there and so how do you navigate and find you know the balance in there i don't know that there is one but what i can say is that for each one of us that journey might look a little unique but in the end i think more so than gosh i need to fit in this box and this label being okay inside here in your heart and getting very, very comfortable and loving yourself, loving the person that looks back at you in the mirror. That's where I found my peace. So many moments in this story where it feels like your life was being defined by others and you were living the life they thought you should live. And then this moment of awareness at 18, when you realized I was completely raised as a lie. I mean, what an unbelievable story. And how you faced it with such, I'm not going to say fearlessness, because certainly it sounds like there was some fear and pain in there, but how you faced it head on. And what I really appreciate about this story is you you never stop being curious, learning about your situation, to learning about your heritage, you're learning about yourself. And here you are on the other side of this, you know, as I think another evolution of Naima that is even stronger and more, more amazing than the last one. What an incredible story. 
when you think about this story as a whole, Naima, you know, what is, is there been a, along this journey, is there been an unexpected positive for you that, that just came out of the blue as you wrote the book and went through this journey? Yeah, great question. And thank you for that. I appreciate what you said just now. I, I, I would say that the feeling that I'm walking around with this title, author, <laughs> Because as I said, I didn't actually think that this was going to happen. When Eric said I was going to write 25,000 words, like that was a joke. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so never going to happen, hearing, right? <laughs> no, right? And hearing, hearing people say, oh, you're an author. And I'm like, oh, me. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I did this thing. Right. So that's been, that's been a lot of fun. I have, my oldest is 26, and he sent me a text recently, and it gave me the whole mom moment of, he is this adult out in the world doing these amazing things, but as an adult now, he's looking at me from adult eyes, and the text was simply, I'm so proud of you. And I think I started chiropractic school right before the economy crashed in 2008. And we had our family lost everything. And we went from a six-figure family income to food stamps. And one of the hardest parts for me was when my kids found out we were on food stamps and I had so much shame around it. Like we had just failed and we were on food stamps, not because I thought it would be a good idea to have a backup, but John, there wasn't anything in the cabinet that day. And I didn't know how we were going to get food that day. And I was afraid and I had to work my way through that living on financial aid that was meant for a person of one for a family of five when I was in chiropractic school. And I had to fight really hard every single day to make it work and to now look back. And it's been 13 years and, and I've got to accomplish some really cool things. But in the end, that moment that I was so ashamed of being on food stamps to now when my kid sends me this text that says, you've worked so hard and I'm so proud of you. That's pretty dope. <laughs> what an absolutely extraordinary moment. I can only imagine you looking at your phone and your, wherever you were that day and, and having that moment going through this journey, recognizing all the struggles you've faced racism, criticism, the lies you grew up with, finding out that, you know, your life wasn't at all what you thought it was. And here you are, you went through this journey of discovery. You went through some major painful ups and downs, had a lot of help from community and professionals along the way, but you know, here you are an author, a business owner. And now I would argue living your, you know, living your best life. And it just keeps getting better every day. What an extraordinary story, Naima. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you. When you think about a key message or lesson from the book that you want readers to take away, what, what might that be? That no matter how complex, how convoluted that your story begins, 
that you do not have to accept somebody else's narrative of who you are. They do not define you, that ultimately you get to define yourself. Your worthiness comes from inside. And what I hope is that vulnerability is what I learned is the greatest strength. And so what I hope that people get from my story is just an inspiration because what I truly want for people is that you choose to live outrageously vulnerable because that that's true authenticity. It isn't making something up. It isn't trying to be somebody you're not. It's not trying to fit into a model or a label, but it is looking at yourself in the mirror accepting the things that are amazing about you and going out in the world and just shining as you. What a great message of inspiration. You know, finding your identity, owning it, not letting others determine it for you, no matter what your circumstance. And there aren't going to be many listeners out there that have had a more unique circumstance than than yours, Naima. I mean, what an unbelievable story. Thank you so much for bringing this message and sharing it with the world to inspire and help, I think, many others that have struggled with different circumstances in their lives and and certainly sharing your incredibly unique and and challenging story. And and the fact that here you are on the other side of it living, you know, I would argue your your best life. And it sounds like it's only going to get better from here, Naima. Thank you for sharing your story. I am so honored to be on the show and have this conversation with you, John. Thank you so much. Really, the pleasure is all mine. If people want to learn more about you and your story, Naima, where where might they go find more information about you? Best place is Instagram and it's Dr. Naima Wright. So D-R-N-A-E-E-M-A-W-R-I-T-E-S. Dr. Naima Wrights at Instagram. What a story. Raised as a Lie will be available this December 2021 and can be found wherever you buy books online. Naima, what a pleasure to have you on. Wish you the best in the rest of your journey. Thanks, John. I'm your host of the creator community, John Saunders. Keep moving forward.